From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, November 9th. I'm Aaron Schachter. Gasoline rationing and power outages, the effects of Sandy linger in New York and New Jersey. On Long Island, residents who lost power are grateful for utility workers like this one, who came down from Canada to help. Guys were cold, guys were soaked. The pride factor was we want that power on, we want that kid to be warm, and we want that kid to be safe. And later, how an American woman with a liberal arts degree ended up boxing in Thailand. I think that violence is both a noun and a philosophical term. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is urging residents to be patient as they get used to the city's new odd-even gasoline rationing plan. Gas rationing is also in effect on Long Island and in New Jersey, where fuel is still in short supply in the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy. There were similar shortages in Japan after last year's devastating earthquake and tsunami. ABC News reporter Akiko Fujita in Tokyo covered that disaster. What we experienced here in Japan is very similar to what we're seeing over on the East Coast there in the U.S. Um, I remember just days after the earthquake, you know, we immediately tried to go from Tokyo up north to the most devastated areas. And what we saw everywhere was just line after line after line coming out of gas stations. The priority was given to rescue crews um, who obviously had to go out and uh, clean up the debris, search for bodies, Um, That's where all the gas went initially. And so people who were trying to get food and trying to evacuate, uh, for example, near the Fukushima um, nuclear plant, they had to line up for hours and hours just to get, you know, really just five gallons of gas even. And were they trying to run generators? Were they trying to get gas for their cars to Um, get out? They did run generators. But uh, when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who were displaced, trying to get to shelters, trying to get to, you know, get food, This was really a situation, at least for me, we would line up for an hour and get to the front of the line only to find out that they had run out of gas. So you would line up again at another gas station, essentially just begging anybody to give us gas so we can just keep going. We have seen uh, people almost come to blows waiting for gas uh, in, in New York. Did you see anything like that in Japan in the aftermath of the earthquake and tsunami? Well, one of the things that really struck me is just how patient um, the Japanese were um, during really what was the worst uh, natural disaster in Japan's history. Um, I remember being outside a shelter at midnight with lines stretched around the block for people just waiting for water. But I was struck by how quietly they were waiting. People were not complaining. They were just standing there because they knew that everybody else was in the same boat. You know, outside the gas stations, people would line up as early as midnight, hoping that they could get some gas in the morning. Um, But I did not hear of any price gouging or breaking out initially. 
And so, you know, I would say that in general, Japanese were, were very calm and patient about it, knowing that hundreds of thousands of people were in the same boat. You noticed that Japan came up with some kind of system um, for rationing the gas that might be instructive for people in New York. I mean, they're doing, you know, the license plate, the odd even thing. Is, is that more or less what happened in Japan? Well, I know that um, initially they would allow people to get gas, but only a specific amount, um, anywhere from two to five gallons. And so people would actually, you know, line up knowing that they would only get a small amount, but that would at least help them get to the grocery store or um, go to the shelter to find out if their loved ones were there. So that was what was initially put in place after all the emergency workers and everybody else were taken care of. Akiko Fujita is a reporter for ABC News. She joined us from Tokyo. For many residents of Long Island, New York, the biggest concern right now remains being without power. Tens of thousands of customers have been without electricity since Sandy hit the region almost two weeks ago now. Some got their power back, only to lose it again after this week's nor'easter. Utility crews from all around the nation are there to help, and there are some Canadian crews, too. The CBC's Laura Lynch has been on Long Island to check on those crews from north of the border. Laura, how unusual or usual is it for Canadian crews to come into the U.S. to help like this? Well, it's not unprecedented in and of itself. In fact, there are mutual assistance agreements that that extend across the border. So if a company or a province or a town gets into trouble, they just put out the call for someone to come across. And in fact, I don't know if you recall this, in 1998, there was a massive ice storm that mainly hit Montreal. And crews came up from New York to help out then. And apparently some crews even came up from Florida, although I'm not sure how familiar they were in working in conditions of (laughs) snow and ice. But this time around... It is unusual in the sheer numbers of people who they've had to call on to come down. And and that's the obvious reason why is because there are so many people left without power. Are the Canadian crews from a particular place? Are they volunteers? How does that work? Well, the call goes out. Come and help us. And then people in, their, in the communities, uh, mostly in eastern Canada, look at what their own resources need. So in this case, uh, they came from Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia. But they scan the whole entire area. The guys get in their trucks and they start driving. And this time they had to make sure they came down with full tanks of gas because they know there's a problem here with gas too, as you just heard. And uh, what's been the response of uh, New York residents to the Canadian crews? These residents were on the street that hadn't had power for, for 10 days, and then the Canadian trucks came rolling down the street from a town called Burlington, Ontario. There was one gentleman there shoveling snow off the sidewalk. His name is Kim Craig Nolan, and it didn't take him long to see the maple leaf and notice that these workers are Canadian, and he was pretty happy about it. It's been a siege for these people, you know, and to think that we got to get you Canucks down here to bail us out. I, I think it's like a, a miracle of social organization. And we're very thankful. And not surprising that they're thankful, given the situation that they've been living through. On this street, a giant tree had been uprooted by Hurricane Sandy and came crashing down on a house and brought all the power lines down with it. So the workers were facing a pretty big task. The, the Canadians are coming down from a, a place that's cold, gets a lot of snow, wind and rain, that sort of thing. So they must be pretty used to this sort of thing. Well, that is true to an extent, but the other Americans who they were working with, because they combine with American supervisors, sort of picked out the Canadians as the, as the stars of the show. There was a gentleman from Virginia named Dexter Trump who was working with this Canadian crew, and he told me that the Canadians stood out, especially after the Nor'easter came on top of the hurricane. They had us working with uh, other folks, and we couldn't get anything done. They gave us these Canadian boys, and 
worked from morning till last night. They want to keep going, get everybody's lights on, so they kept going. You have to understand that when he was talking about going the, the night before, that night I was out in it. It was nasty. The, the winds were blowing so strong. The sleet was coming down. It was bone-chilling cold. I met Brad Cumming, who was in charge of this particular group, and he talked about the fact that it was important for them to keep going on the night of the nor'easter in the cold and in the dark because of one mother who came up to them and told them she would really like it if they could get the power back on because she had a sick child, a very sick child, and she was very concerned about him spending another night without heat. Guys were cold. Guys were soaked. They couldn't feel their fingers. They couldn't feel their toes. But the important part was for us, the pride factor was we want that power on. We want that kid to be warm and we want that kid to be safe. And Aaron, when they finally did get the power back on, it was about 9 or 10 at night, they could hear applause rolling up and down the street from everybody who was just waiting for it to come back on, and that was applause for them. Well, that's nice. That's one success story. I I imagine they'll be there for for a while yet, though. They're in it for as long as they're needed, uh, and then they'll turn around and head back up to Canada and wait for the storms to hit there. The CBC's Laura Lynch, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. President Obama addressed the nation today for the first time since his victory speech on election night. He told an audience at the White House that Americans had voted for action, and he announced that he's invited congressional leaders to the White House next week to discuss a compromise on the budget. But any deal, said the president, must include higher taxes for the wealthiest Americans. I want to be clear. I'm not wedded to every detail of my plan. I'm open to compromise. I'm open to new ideas. I'm committed to solving our fiscal challenges. But I refuse to accept any approach that isn't balanced. That, of course, is newly re-elected President Obama. Now, a key question during the campaign was, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Well, that depends on who you ask and how you measure it. Most economists look at things like unemployment, the consumer price index, and gross domestic product, or GDP. But some say those statistics don't give an accurate picture of the true health of the economy. The world's Jason Margolis has the story. Mitt Romney ran for president on a central theme. The economy isn't getting better. He pointed to our gross domestic product, or GDP, which measures the output of all goods and services in our economy. By this metric, the economy has been growing, although slowly. But Eric Zensi wants you to understand just what GDP is actually telling us. Zensi is a political economist with the Gund Institute for Ecological Economics at the University of Vermont. I think GDP should be renamed so that we don't mistake it for a measure of well-being. I think we should call it gross domestic transactions. That's all it is. It totes up the monetary value of all the transactions. And if it had that name, that would help break the association people have with the idea that more GDP is better. It's like, hmm, more transactions are better? Well, it depends on what you're transacting. For example, the billions of dollars that are pouring into post-Sandy cleanup will boost our GDP as money changes hands. Of course, a lot of shuttered businesses will hamper GDP growth. So does all this adding and subtracting give us a real measure of economic progress? Zensi is part of the movement that doesn't think so. So the movement for kind of a sane approach to the economy is to measure the actual thing you're trying to do, which is improve the living standards and well-being of people. When I first spoke with Zensi a few years ago, he and others like him were largely ignored by mainstream economists and policymakers. 
They still are, but the movement is gaining some momentum. This spring, some 600 international scholars and leaders gathered at the United Nations to discuss happiness and well-being as measures of economic progress. The meeting was convened by the Kingdom of Bhutan, which is known for its gross national happiness index. Several states, including Vermont, have also begun measuring well-being to gauge economic vitality. Many still dismiss these ideas as flaky, anti-consumer, or radical left-wing political engineering. Still, some big names are giving them credence. Here's Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke this summer. The ultimate purpose of economics, of course, is to understand and promote the enhancement of well-being. But just how do you quantify well-being? Last year, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD, based in Paris, unveiled its Better Life Index. They have a very cool website where you can compare how 36 countries stack up on a variety of measures, things like levels of education, health, and your sense of community. Anthony Gooch with the OECD says no one country comes off as the overall winner. Determining the strongest economies depends on what you value. If you care about life satisfaction, Denmark is the place to be. If safety is your thing, then it's Japan. U.S. performs very strongly on quality of housing, uh, on income. It performs uh, strongly on civic engagement. It performs pretty well on uh, jobs. There are some areas where it doesn't do so strongly. For example, the sense of work-life balance in the U.S. uh, compared to uh, the other 35 countries isn't strong. So where does all of this new economic thinking go from here? Again, Eric Zensi in Vermont. Yeah, what what is the... uh... What is the path ahead? What what kind of um, strategies are there? And that's a very difficult question. Zensi concedes it'll be difficult to get policymakers to subscribe to these new economic measures. But with the campaigns now over, politicians don't need to worry about every week's economic indicator. And that might open the door to some new ways of thinking, at least until the next campaign cycle. For the world... I'm Jason Margolis. The website for the Better Life Index is really cool, and we have a link to it at theworld.org. You can watch countries move up and down in the rankings depending on what measure you're looking at. Coming up, the battle over yogurt and what makes some of it Greek. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. It's not a great time to be a major European airline, Several have announced layoffs since the start of Europe's economic crisis. The latest is Spain's Iberia, and that's bad news for a country already burdened with the European Union's highest unemployment rate. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Barcelona. When British Airways merged with Iberia in 2011, the joint venture's new slogan was Stronger Together. Mm, It hasn't exactly worked out that way. IAG shares rise. It will cut 4,500 jobs at Spanish airline Iberia and lose 25 planes from the fleet. This is from Bloomberg TV today. 4,500 jobs, 25 planes. Iberia, long a symbol of Spanish identity, is reeling. The conglomerate that owns the airline, International Airline Group, or IAG, says Iberia is losing more than $2 million a day. Without layoffs and restructuring, says IAG, it'll be grounded for good. 
Iberia isn't just any old airline. For many Spaniards, it's inseparable from Spain itself, an indelible part of the national identity. When it merged with British Airways last year, some worried for its future in the hands of foreigners. Today, some Spanish media reacted to the layoffs almost as if the country were under attack. On national radio this morning, journalist Ricardo Martín said the news was just terrible. He said the truth is we're facing the dismantling of a company that belongs to all Spaniards. Actually, Iberia hasn't been Spanish for over a decade. It was privatized and sold in 2001. Although this year the Spanish government did accidentally become its biggest shareholder again when it was forced to nationalize a bank and Iberia shareholder called Bankia. Iberia officials acknowledge they've lost their competitive edge to low-cost airlines such as Ryanair and EasyJet. That's why Iberia started its own low-cost venture called Vueling. But today, as IAG was announcing Iberia's massive layoffs, it took control of Vueling via stock purchases. That's angered Iberia execs further. But Vueling makes money. So does IAG's other airline, British Airways. But the president of the Spanish Airline Pilots Union, Justo Peral, says the Brits have deliberately brought Iberia to its knees. They want to condemn Iberia to death, he told Spanish radio, strip it of its very Spanishness, after all we Spaniards have invested in infrastructure. As the Brits hire more staff and grow their business, financing themselves with shares of Iberia, they dare to fire thousands of our workers. Peral says to expect massive protests. It isn't all bad news in Spain today. An iconic Spanish company may be up against the ropes, but a major carmaker has announced plans to hire 250 Spaniards as it expands operations in Sevilla. That company is French, Renault. It's not a lot of jobs, but with unemployment at 25% nationally, every bit helps. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. In Greece, there's not even that hint of good news, just more bad news, the latest of which concerns yogurt. Yep, yogurt. It's become a source of disagreement between a Greek company and one with Turkish connections. The Chobani story is a community story, a story of revival. Chobani Greek yogurt is America's number one selling Greek-style strained yogurt. Chobani was founded by a Turkish-American businessman, and there's no love lost between Greeks and Turks at the best of times. So it may not surprise you that Greek dairy giant Faye isn't crazy about a company with Turkish connections calling its products Greek. Chobani has just entered the U.K. market, and Faye has gone to court there. Its argument? That only yogurt produced in Greece can be called Greek. Right now, Faye controls 90% of the Greek-style yogurt market in the U.K., so it has a big stake. The British court is expected to rule on exactly what the word Greek means early next year. Muay Thai boxing is the national sport of Thailand. It's sometimes called the art of eight limbs. Unlike Western boxing, you can use legs, knees, and elbows, as well as fists. This weekend, you can see it at Madison Square Garden. Most Muay Thai fighters are men, but there are a few women, including one from America. From northern Thailand, David Hecht reports. The boxing ring here in Chiang Mai looks like any in the West. Then the fight begins. Thailand's Yod Ying lands a vicious kick below the armpit of Sylvia Van Douglas Ito from the USA. She responds with a kick to the stomach. Now they're jabbing each other in the ribs, and Von Douglas Ito smashes her elbow into Ying's face. 
and again. Ying's eyes are puffing up. But after five rounds, the judges declare Ying the winner. In the West, I would have won that fight. This is Sylvia Van Douglas Ito. In the West, it would have been my aggression versus her retreat, and I definitely would have won. But in Thailand, it's um, complicated. It's not the fighting that's different, it's the judging, she says. For example, a foot to the head counts for more than an elbow. It's a Buddhistic country, and so it's a top-down hierarchy. The feet are seen as filthy and degrading, so if you can get the bottom of your foot into someone's face, it's seen as this incredibly, like, oh, you really got him type of thing. Elbows do score if they draw blood. So you actually want to split the skin. You can get a cheek, um, you can get up by the eyebrow. The skin is thick and thin right around the eye, so when you hit it with a certain amount of pressure, it hits the bone and it just pops open. Von Douglas Ito may sound like a trained killer. In fact, she has a liberal arts degree from Sarah Lawrence. I think that violence is um, both a noun and a philosophical term. And in Muay Thai, violence is something distinct from aggression. You are supposed to have a cool heart, is what they call it, which is that you're not excited by anything that happens. You don't get angry at your opponent. It's usually the younger guys, but if they get knocked down or they lose face in some way in the middle of the fight, they'll come back up and throw a flurry of punches and kicks. And and it's not rewarded because they've become emotional. Keeping cool is an issue for her, too, she says. I grew up with three older brothers. I'm the only girl in my family. Um, so I was kind of always trying to keep up with the boys or at least not be singled out as the only girl. And a small girl at that, at just five foot two and 105 pounds. Her trainer, Tawin Bontham, teases her with the nickname Mini. Small. Small girl. Small one. I call her Mini. She's even smaller than some of her Thai opponents, but... She's strong. She is strong. And she's tenacious, although Bontham says that's also her weakness. We have to change something, you know. Van Douglas Ito says the women she fights tend to run from her. I'm kind of forced to chase in a way that really is playing their game. They are using my power against me because I don't have control of my power until I'm within range. And so they're playing a more feminine defensive game than I do. She says there's also a difference in the way people in Thailand and back home view her. She used to be a bartender in New York. When I was behind the bar, I would often get comments on my body. So when I first would tell people that I was a fighter, uh, the immediate assumption was, oh, like foxy boxing, like it's not serious. Now it's kind of funny when I'm getting prepared for a fight in Thailand, they give you an oil massage. Standing, uh, you know, in the back of the stadium with people milling around, there are people who are going to be betting on the fighters and they look at you like a racehorse and full on just grab my arm and pinch it and see how strong I am. They're not touching you like a sexual object, they're touching you like a like a fighting object. I mean, it's definitely deciding whether or not they're going to bet on me that is their motive. So far, Sylvia Van Douglas Ito has been a good bet. She's recently won a rematch with Yod Ying. She knocked Yod Ying out in the second round. For The World, I'm David Hecht, Chiang Mai, Thailand. Thai fighting with all eight limbs? We've got video at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up, a former oil man becomes the new Archbishop of Canterbury, and later the Bernie Madoff of the violin world, plus opening Jerusalem's cloistered buildings to the public. While walking around those streets... You become curious what's going on in those buildings that you haven't been in. 
ERIs, the world is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. There's a new Archbishop of Canterbury. That's the person who heads the Church of England and acts as spiritual leader to some 77 million Anglicans worldwide. The new Archbishop is Justin Welby. And one of the more interesting things about him is the fact that he spent more than a decade in the oil business. Another interesting personal detail, his father was a bootlegger in the U.S. during Prohibition. The BBC's Jane Little covers religion issues. Jane, where did Justin Welby come from to reach this top spot? Well, he has a very interesting, unusual story. He's a 56-year-old man who's only been a priest for 20 years, not very long in Anglican years, and a bishop for just one of them. That's very unusual. He's got five children. Uh, tragically, he lost a baby girl in a car accident in 1983, which he suggested influenced his decision to leave the oil industry, which he'd been working in for a long time, and to go into the church. His wife, children, and one grandchild were with him today at Lambeth palace where he will be living. Uh, He seemed to be quite at ease, joking with the press. He said that he had a better barber and spent more on razors than the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, who's recognisable by his grey beard and scraggy grey hair. But on a, a more serious note, his appointment, he said, was astonishing and exciting. And he told the BBC what he thought he was there to do. I think my principal job is to be one of those who leads the church in the worship of Jesus Christ and in the proclamation of the good news about Jesus Christ. In order to do that, there needs to be reconciliation within the church. That is clear. Now, Jane Little, what is this reconciliation that uh, Justin Welby is referring to there? Well, the Church of England is the mother church of the global Anglican communion, and that communion is riven by bitter division, more so than at any time in its history. The Church of England itself is divided over the role of women in the church. We're going to see a vote in just 10 days' time over the ordination of women as bishops, which Justin Welby himself strongly favours, much to the delight of the liberal wing. But he's also facing the biggest divisions over homosexuality, saying, same-sex marriage, the interpretation of scripture. African churches have been leading the descent to liberal Western churches ever since the ordination of Jean Robinson in New Hampshire, the first openly gay bishop in the Anglican Communion. Now, Justin Welby is seen as an evangelical, being on the conservative wing in terms of biblical matters. He opposes same-sex marriage. So in a way, there's something in this appointment for everyone. Now, as you mentioned, though, Justin Welby has been a priest for only 20 years. Uh, As far as careers go in the church, he's moved up the Anglican hierarchy pretty fast. Why him? Why was he chosen? Well, I think it would be fair to describe it as a meteoric rise, yes. I think at a time of crisis, the church needed strong leadership, someone seen as an honest broker. And I think his business background as an oil industry executive really probably played a crucial role in that. In fact, I asked the former Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, who's currently in Washington, whether he thought Justin Welby had been chosen to be less of a pastor-in-chief than as a chief executive. 
Oh, no, I don't think that that comes into it at all. I mean, God forbid we have a CEO of the Church of England and the Anglican Communion. We deeply need a pastor, someone who's going to travel to reconcile groups and bring them together again. I think, though, the background to your question is very interesting because I do think that the oil experience, the business experience, is a gift that will help him to do his job. But all the signs are that he's going to serve the church very well. Remind us, if you would, just what the Archbishop of Canterbury does. Is it like the Pope for Anglicans or Episcopalians as we know them in the United States? I guess what I'm trying to get at is just how important and influential this job is. Well, he's certainly not the Pope. You may recall there was something called the Reformation in England, and that left the King and (laughs) now the Queen technically as the head of the Church of England. But the Archbishop of Canterbury is the spiritual head, the figurehead of that and the global church. Some suggest the role actually needs to be beefed up for there to be more centralised authority in the Anglican Communion so that there's someone there to clamp down on dissent. But others say, no, there's room for that. Where the Anglican tradition the so-called middle way, and we have to muddle through this together. I think whatever happens, he's going to have a tough time holding people together. And uh, Lord Carey told me that the 105th Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, would need to keep a sense of humour. His advice was to laugh at himself every day. The BBC's Jane Little speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Jane, thanks. Thank you. For one weekend, and only one weekend every year, the city of Jerusalem lets the public take a sneak peek inside some of its most secretive sites. It's part of an initiative that takes place in about a dozen cities around the globe. But in the normally cloistered Jerusalem, it's an especially intriguing invitation, as Daniel Estrin reports. Architect Alon Bin Nun curates the initiative, called Houses from Within. The idea is to expose Israelis to Jerusalem landmarks they may have passed a million times, but have never seen. Like, what's behind those mysterious wooden doors? What are those church spires in the distance? You walk through the streets and then suddenly there's a monastery. And around the monastery, there's a wall. And you cannot peep inside and you cannot look and nothing. And you know that there's a garden behind there because you see the trees above the wall. But you're not allowed in. You're never allowed in. Jerusalem is full of these secret gardens. Over the past few centuries, churches from Russia, Armenia, Greece, as well as the Vatican, have built up properties here. They've all wanted a stake in the Holy Land. And mostly they've kept outsiders out. Bin Nun, the architect, says he convinced a lot of these property owners to open up their doors for the initiative. Like this one. A church belonging to the Armenian community. It's a beautiful limestone building built in 1884, and it's right at the beginning of a popular street lined with jewelry shops and pizza parlors. The gates have always been closed to Israelis, until now. This church service was packed with Israelis. Outside, I met a woman named Chava. She's been shopping on this street since the 1930s, and she'd never before set foot inside the church walls. While walking around those streets... Mm -hmm. You become curious, what's going on in those buildings that you haven't been in? Israelis, Jerusalemite people, love the Jerusalem. And they're very curious to know all the, you know, all those buildings. A small group of Israelis got a peek at another secret garden of sorts, the inner chambers of Israel's National Library. 
Israeli National Library curator Aviad Stolman put on soft white gloves and slowly opened up a thin notebook. What you see here, he tells the group, is a notebook written in Hebrew and German belonging to, dramatic pause, It's a list of vocab words handwritten by Franz Kafka from when he studied Hebrew. It's one of the library's prized possessions, the curator says. People don't really have a chance to see these rare treasures. The truth is I don't get to see these treasures. Only when a very important person like the prime minister would come here or some great supporter of the library, they bring up these books. Houses from Within is part of a worldwide initiative called Open House, which got its inspiration from a long-standing French tradition. Once a year, thousands of private properties considered historic sites open their doors to the French public. For the past six years, Jerusalem has been following suit. A lot still remains off-limits, like the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Islam's third holiest site. Jerusalem, after all, is at the core of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, The Palestinian part of the city generally boycotts Israeli initiatives like this one. This neighborhood is just a few minutes' walk from downtown Jerusalem, but it's like a different universe. It's the ultra-Orthodox Jewish Bukharan quarter. The men wear black suits and brimmed hats. Their wives wear wigs to conceal their hair. There are posters everywhere warning you not to come here if you're not dressed modestly. On a Houses from Within tour of the neighborhood, visitors peek inside apartment windows and take snapshots of locals on the street. Lily Tompkins was on the tour. She lived in Jerusalem for years, but this neighborhood is foreign to her. I think it's very interesting to see what's happening, places that I wouldn't come on my own because it's, I'm not religious and I don't feel comfortable to be around here on my own. Architect Bin Nun isn't just interested in showing Israelis what's hidden behind Jerusalem's many stone walls. He also hopes to break down mental walls as well. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Franz Kafka's notebooks and other Jerusalem treasures rarely shown to the public. Daniel Estrin sent us a slideshow, and you can see it too at theworld.org. For today's Geo Quiz, picture a golden Buddha sitting atop a mountain of copper. We're looking for one of the largest underground copper deposits in the world. It's in an eastern province of Afghanistan called Logar. A Chinese company has purchased the right to mine the site, and cash-strapped Afghanistan stands to reap billions of dollars in revenue from the deal. But there's a hitch. There's an ancient Buddhist monastery there, and the site is full of centuries-old Buddha statues and artifacts. Mining operations threaten all of them, and archaeologists are scrambling to save what they can. So, name the site where ancient Buddhas may soon be destroyed by a copper mine that's set to start operations in December. So, we're going to go straight to the answer. Brent Huffman is a filmmaker who's been traveling to Afghanistan to document what's happening at the site. Tell us the name of this important archaeological site. So, the the site is called Mace Einak. The first thing maybe you'll notice about the site if you could travel there is its size. It's a monastery complex. Um, It's got over 400 life-size or bigger Buddhist statues. Archaeologists tell me there's uh, manuscripts actually within the monasteries, still sort of buried inside. Um, Most of the the relics, uh, the structures, the Buddhist statues are too fragile to be moved. So all of this is going to be, you know, destroyed. When does this site date back to? 
thousands of years. Uh, the Buddhist site is about 2,600 years old, um, but archaeologists have also found ancient copper smelters uh, at the site that date back 5,000 years. And the archaeologists have only picked up sort of the first remnants from the Bronze Age. This is really an, an incredible story because what's happening here is the need to preserve these relics, the Buddhist relics, is crashing up against Afghanistan's need to support itself. And one of the ways that it can support itself is with minerals. You understand the, the dilemma here, right? Yes. And, and so my issue with copper as a resource, it's $100 billion worth of copper, right, which is hard for any relics to fight against that kind of money. So in theory, it would bring, it would bring in jobs, it would bring in revenue for the government. But in reality, the country is so corrupt. The ministries, the Afghan ministries are so corrupt. I mean, it's really impossible for the money to go anywhere other than corrupt officials' pockets right away. And then the money sort of disappears out of the country. A hundred so billion dollars will just vanish, you think? It, it won't be it won't be a hundred billion dollars all at once. You know, it, it's, you know, incremental payments to the Afghan government. It's my, you know, personal opinion, my fear that all that money will 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 disappear. Um, the other issue is jobs. And unfortunately, Chinese companies sort of set this precedent that they bring in their own managers and workers from China. So the only jobs Afghans will get from this will be, you know, slave labor type jobs. So are these incredible Buddhist relics just doomed? I mean, the mining operation is scheduled to begin relatively soon, right? Um, mining experts that I've talked to say that the, the Chinese company can't start mining right away. But they have set this deadline in December that they will force archaeologists off of the, the site and bring in bulldozers, start the first early stages. Is it possible for the mining operation to work around the Buddhist site? As far as I know, no. Actually, the, it's ironic, but the, the Buddhists were actually mining the copper too. So the Buddhists are there for the copper as well, and they were using the copper to make artifacts and to sell so the Buddhist site is literally on top of this this copper. Can anything be saved? I mean, can they move the Buddhas away or or carry some of the structures to somewhere else? They've tried. They proposed um, actually using a helicopter to kind of airlift some of the the artifacts out, but they're so fragile. These structures, are, I think, would just crumble and turn to dust if they tried to move them. And also, the the area in Logar Province is is so dangerous. There's a Taliban presence, and certainly they would shoot down a, a helicopter. They have been able to remove small, you know, handheld. Uh, relics out of May Sinak, and they're currently holding it at the National uh, Museum in Kabul. You're putting together a movie about this, right? Yes, I'm returning to the site once again in December, so next month, to hopefully not be documented at the end of the site, but if, if that is the case, you know, I, I will be sort of bearing witness to the end of this, this ancient city, um, sadly. Brent Huffman teaches journalism at Northwestern University in Chicago. He's been telling us about the Golden Buddhas and the copper deposit in Mesainak, Afghanistan. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can see the Mesainak Buddha statues, perhaps a last glimpse before the mining begins. Plus, watch a trailer for Brent Huffman's documentary shot on site in Afghanistan. Pictures and video, of course, at theworld.org. And today's geotexting game winners come from near and far. They are Catherine in Folsom, California, Travis in Denver, and Natalie, who sent in the correct answer all the way from Galicia in Spain. That answer again is Mes Anak in Logar Province, Afghanistan.
And before we take a break, here's an extra web-only offering for you, a special edition podcast from the world's Marco Werman. He was in London before, during, and after the election, gathering global perspectives on the U.S. presidency. Listen and download the special podcast. It is at theworld.org slash elections. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. I've got a sad and twisted tale to tell you. Let's set the mood with some appropriate music. In Vienna today, a German violin dealer named Dietmar Machold was sentenced to six years in prison. It's a huge fall for Machold, once considered a leading dealer in Stradivarius violins. Before his come down, Dietmar Machold apparently cut quite the figure. Very erudite and charming and, and clever. That's Christopher Runing, a violin dealer here in Boston. Runing says Machold was perhaps a bit too clever. People wondered how he paid for his playboy lifestyle. Runing says many in the violin world suspected that Machold was playing a little fast and loose. Though I would say that none of us really knew the scale of his fraud, but basically he's the Bernie Madoff of the of the violin world, unfortunately. It's easy to get away with that sort of Ponzi scheme um, for some period of time. It's just amazing that he was able to do it for as long as he he was able to get away with it, and, and on, the, on this massive scale that he managed to pull off. Machold's Ponzi scheme involved musical instruments. He was convicted of using violins that he was supposed to sell on behalf of clients to secure bank credits to finance his business and private life. Machold actually declared bankruptcy two years ago. His debts reportedly amount to more than $100 million. As for his impact on the market for fine violins... He's not unique. There's plenty of con men in this world and these sociopaths that's managed to... Um, pull off frauds in various industries. Um, unfortunately, he landed in, in the violin business. Um, so, yes, it's damaging. I think um, it it speaks badly of human nature, I think, more than anything else. Machold seemed contrite today after the sentencing. Austrian state broadcaster ORF quoted him as saying, there's nothing to quibble about, and I'm going to be punished. Going to see a big Hollywood movie these days, you often end up putting on 3D glasses. Take Martin Scorsese's 2011 movie Hugo. It was produced in 3D. The film was based on the book The Invention of Hugo Cabret, but the story was inspired by the real French filmmaker Georges Méliès. Méliès was a master of special effects, turn of the 20th century special effects. He's best known for the 1902 film A Trip to the Moon. You know, the one where a rocket pokes the moon in the eye? Méliès was a showman, and his family continues the tradition to this day. They've taken his movies on a tour of the U.S. The world's Adeline Sear caught up with them in Boston. Madeleine Maltet-Méliès was raised by her grandfather, Georges Méliès. The character Isabelle in Hugo is based on her. Once upon a time, I met a boy named Hugo Cabret. He searched to find a secret message. I need to know what this means. Maldet Melias says her family loved Hugo. They saw it as an imaginative tribute to Georges Melias. Melias made 500 films in his lifetime, but most of them were lost or destroyed during World War I. So Maldet Melias has dedicated her life to finding and preserving what's left of his body of work. 
personne ne s'intéressait à la, la conservation des films anciens. No one was interested in film conservation until the late 30s, she says. So I had to go around hunting for existing copies of those celluloid films and then have them restored. I started with eight films, and today the family has more than 200 of them. She wanted to make sure her grandfather's work wouldn't be forgotten. Theater performance runs in the family, so she went on tour with the silent films presented with narration and piano, the way it used to be. She started after the Second World War and kept at it for decades. But now she's 89, and she's done with touring. No, no, c'est fini, Ooh la la. These days, the daughter of one of her cousins hits the road to present the films. During screenings, Marie-Hélène Lehérisset does what's called le boniment, the witty and sometimes mocking narration, like a carnival barker, because those silent films didn't have intertitles to explain the story. She says she learned how to perform this boniment from her grandfather, George's son. Mon grand-père, qui était chanteur d'opéra, je parle d'André Méliès, le fils de Georges. My grandfather, André Méliès, was an opera singer, and he had a great memory, she says. So he remembered exactly what his father taught him about the tone and words for the film's narration. He passed this on to my mother and me. When I was 20, he said, I'm retiring. It's your turn now. Now her adult son, Lawrence, accompanies her on a piano. They are the fourth and fifth generations of the Méliès family to do this. I kind of fell into this gig as a child. I learned from watching others doing it. The idea is not to compete with the film, but to help highlight the images and the action. Lawrence says it's more like a live theater performance than a movie screening. Here's Marie-Hélène narrating the opening scene for A Trip to the Moon. On screen, there's a group of scientists in pointy hats and long white wigs in an observatory. Nous avons le privilège d'assister à une réunion extraordinaire de l'Institut d'Astronomie Incohérente. We have the privilege of being invited to an extraordinary session of the Institute of Incoherent Astronomy. Scientists from around the world are gathering to discuss a new travel project because going around the world has become so passé. Quand on voit les films, c'est plutôt un spectacle. Marie-Hélène Leherisset says many of the films are comedic and full of irony. Most of them starred Méliès himself, who always loved a good laugh. She says the films are whimsical, surprising and entertaining. In short, these are not dusty old silent films. <laughs> Most of Méliès' films use artful tricks, like a puff of smoke, to make people and things disappear right in front of your eyes. That's why his relatives refer to him as a cinemagician. Take the two-minute film The Brahmin and the Butterfly from 1901. It shows a crude caterpillar enter a cocoon and reappear almost instantly as a beautiful woman with butterfly wings. Mais vraiment, c'est le film le plus applaudi dans le monde. Voilà, et celui-là, il est Le RSA says this film is an audience favorite around the world. She would know she and her son have taken their show everywhere from Japan to South America. In the U.S., many audience members are already familiar with the movie Hugo and with Georges Méliès' films, sometimes thanks to YouTube. But, she says, seeing the films in a live setting gives them a new appreciation for these gems from the dawn of cinematography all without 3D.
the Lerere says have a show tomorrow night in Atlanta before heading out to South America. For The World, this is Adeline Cyr. Music to watch silent films by. Come and see Georges Méliès' Trip to the Moon and his magically transformed human butterfly. They're at theworld.org. Our own theme music is composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.